Welcome back to the listener's commentary on the book of Hebrews. We have been carefully working through this book to try to grasp the author's main points as he lays out the superiority of Jesus. And in this particular recording, we're going to be in chapter 7, verses 11 through 28. And this section is part two of the explanation about the superiority of Melchizedek's priesthood, that uh, explanation began at the beginning of chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, where he recalled the story of Melchizedek and drew out some initial implications from that story. So here he continues his discussion of Melchizedek and his priesthood and what that means for the Messiah and Jesus, but he does so by interacting with Psalm 110, which initiated this whole discussion of Melchizedek way back in chapters 414 through 510. He expects us as readers to recall that he quoted Psalm 110 verse 4 in Hebrews chapter 5 verse 6. And even though that's been a while back, he wants us to recall that. And he's going to interact with Psalm 110 as he goes through this section. And what he wants to do is really begin to draw out this main point, that the priesthood of Levi was insufficient and needed to be replaced. And he bases that point about the insufficiency of the Levitical priesthood on the fact that if it was sufficient, there wouldn't have been a need for a new priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, but Psalm 110 promised a new priesthood after the order of Melchizedek and that the Messiah would fulfill that priesthood. And this implies a replacement of priesthood. And that in itself implies an insufficiency in the former priesthood. And so here, what he's going to do in these verses is interact with Psalm 110 about the Messiah and about Melchizedek, drawing out the implications about the superiority of Jesus' priesthood in regards to the Levitical priesthood. He begins this discussion in verse 11 with a rhetorical question that really sets the topic and the direction for this whole section. So here's the question in verse 11. He says, So, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? This is the question that sets up the, the topic and direction and the point that he really wants to make. If the Levitical priesthood was the final word, then why did Psalm 110 promise another priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek? And even though in this question he doesn't mention Psalm 110, it's what enables him to ask the question. And he figures his readers, his audience, is tracking with him because he already quoted Psalm 110 and 5.6. So he asks this question, and he says, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood. What does he mean by if perfection? Well, what he means is, if the, the law and what the Levitical priesthood did, if their work fully and finally dealt with sin, if it achieved all of God's promises, and if it was the final word about priests, well, then there wouldn't have needed to be a promised new priesthood of a different order that Psalm 110 promises. That's what he means by perfection, that it didn't finally and fully deal with all of God's plans and purposes and promises, that it didn't finally and fully deal with sin. And notice also he shifts towards the end. He says, Levitical priesthood, well, then you wouldn't have had one designated according to the order of Aaron. Why Aaron? 
Well, priests in general came from the tribe of Levi, but the high priest was specifically from the line of Aaron within the tribe of Levi. And that's the reason for this. We're, we're going to focus on not just any old priest, the high priest. Jesus' high priesthood, the Messiah's high priesthood. Then he goes on in verse 12, he says, For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. This actually prepares the way for his discussion of the new covenant and thus the new law and all of that that will begin in the next chapter. Chapter 8 through 10 really is going to focus on the new covenant and how Jesus' new priesthood also involves a brand new covenant. The reason for that is stated here in verse 12 um, that the law and the priesthood are all tied up together. Uh, the law and the priesthood stand or fall together, that the whole law and the old covenant really were built together as one institution, one system. Um, notice he says in verse 11, when he asked the question, there's a little parenthesis there. For on the basis of it, that is on the basis of the Levitical priesthood, the people received the law. That the law and the Levitical priesthood go hand in hand. That's what he means when he says, when the priesthood is changed, well, there's of necessity a change in law also. They stand or fall together. So what does this mean for Jesus as Messiah and his priesthood? Well, that's where he turns in verse 13, pointing out that there has been a change in priesthood to a different tribe. So he says in verse 13, For the one about whom these things are said belongs to another tribe, from which no one has officiated at the altar. So the, the priests in the temple and in the tabernacle are from the line of Levi, and the high priest is from the line of Aaron. But what about the Messiah? Right? He's expecting us to remember that he's dealing with Psalm 110. He's going to quote that here very shortly. Um, but he's referring back to that passage, and he says, the one about whom these things are said. That is the Messiah about whom Psalm 110 is talking about when he says there's going to be a new priesthood in the order of Melchizedek. And uh, he says that one, the Messiah, is, as we know, is going to come from another tribe, a tribe that isn't Levi, that's never officiated at the altar. What tribe is that? Well, he's going to tell us in verse 14. He's shifting to the fulfillment of the promise found in Psalm 110, and that fulfillment is Jesus. So he says... Verse 14, for it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses said nothing concerning priests. So Moses means the old covenant and the law of Moses, right? It designated that the descendants of Levi should be priests, not the descendants of Judah. But we know that our Lord, the Messiah, is from the tribe of Judah. That's his royal line, right? And so he's from the royal line of Judah, not the priestly line of Levi. So this clearly indicates a change in priesthood, right? Then he goes on in verse 15, and he's going to add a second indicator of a change in priesthood. So he says, and this is clearer still, that is, his point is clearer still. What he's trying to make about a change of priesthood is clearer still. So he says, this is clearer still if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek. 
What does he mean by the likeness of Melchizedek? Well, he explains in verse 16, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but on, according to the power of an indestructible life. So he's saying, look, my point about a change in priesthood is clearer still when we realize that Psalm 110 promised a, a change in priesthood in the likeness of Melchizedek. That's based not on physical lineage, Levi's tribe. It's based on the power of an indestructible life. And so now he's got two reasons for uh, that support the idea of a change in priesthood. First reason, a new priestly line. Not a Levi. Messiah came from the, the family of Judah. And a new priestly means of determining his priesthood, not legal succession, but the power of an indestructible life. And this is where Melchizedek is a type or an analogy for a new priesthood. Messiah is the actual thing. His resurrection indicates his indestructible life. So how does Melchizedek serve as an analogy or a type for the Messiah to be a priest based on an indestructible life? Well, look at what Psalm 110 says. It says this, he quotes it here in verse 17. For it is attested of him, that is of Messiah, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The author quotes Psalm 110 verse 4 again. This time he uses it to illustrate that the Messiah was prophesied to be a priest who had the power of an indestructible life. You're a priest forever. Then he draws all of these ideas together and states the point in verses 18 and 19. He says this, for on the one hand, there is the nullification of a former commandment, the commandment in the Old Testament law about priesthoods, right? So there is the nullification of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the introduction of a better hope through which we come near to God. So the author of Hebrews here is really now getting to the heart of his argument. We're not just talking about a minor change in the priesthood, the change in priesthood shows us what the real change is, a change in the law or a change in the covenant, because those two stand or fall together, as he noted up above. He notes here that uh, the that commandment, the law, made nothing perfect, and it did so because of its weakness, he says, and uselessness. In what sense was the law weak? Well, the New Testament teaches that the law was weak, not in the sense that it was bad, not in the sense that rules are bad. It teaches that the law was actually holy and righteous and good. The Apostle Paul argues this um, in Romans 7 through 8. So in what sense was it weak? Well, it was weak in the sense that people could not fulfill the law because of the weakness of their fallen humanity, their flesh. That's Romans 8 verse 3. And that's really the consistent idea in the New Testament. That's probably the idea here is that the, the law had a weakness and its weakness was fallen human people and it, it couldn't change them. And in what sense was it useless? Well, that's where you get this parenthetical note here. The law made nothing perfect. It wasn't that it was bad. It's just that it was ineffective. And that's really the force of these two words when put together. Weak and useless uh, is the idea that it was ineffective. It was ineffective in that it could not bring about God's full, complete intent for his people. It could not bring about the full reconciliation and the full 
um, renewal of his people that God desired. So that's why the Apostle Paul, for example, in Galatians 5 will say, when he lists off the fruit of the Spirit, that the lost actually stands there and applauds people who are like that. When, when people have been so transformed that they're full of the fruit of the Spirit, the law doesn't condemn that. It actually applauds that because that's what the law dreamed of. It just couldn't do it because it was weak and it was useless. The idea is ineffective. The law could not bring about God's uh, intent, full, complete intent for his people. And that's the force of the idea of the law made nothing perfect. That word is going to show up multiple times in the next few chapters, perfect. And it's really the sense of completion or complete, bringing things to its intended uh, end, its intended design. And so the law was never intended to be the end-all, be-all of God's plan. It just couldn't do that. And thus, there was the bringing in of a better hope in the Messiah, as Psalm 110 verse 4 says, through which we come near to God, uh, through which now we draw near to God. And he's going to go on in the, the following chapters, particularly chapters 9 and 10, and show how Jesus, through his once-for-all sacrifice, opened up a better way to God, a new way that is now wide open, and we can all now draw near to God, just like the priests in the temple or the tabernacle drew near to God. This word draw near is frequently used of their work. It's sometimes used of worshipers in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so Psalm 110, verse 4, promises a new priesthood, which entails a change of covenant or law, and that's because we needed something better. And thus now the Messiah has come in the person of Jesus, and he is ushered in a better hope by which we draw near to God. And how certain was this plan of God that was promised in Psalm 110? Well, look at verse 20. And to the extent that it was not without an oath, for they, that is the Levitical priests, indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, and he's going to quote another part of Psalm 110, but notice how certain is it? Well, it came with an oath. And the Levitical priesthood, it didn't have an oath. That's pretty certain when God swears and gives an oath. What, what oath is he talking about? Well, look again at Psalm 110. He quotes that when he says um, that, that God said, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And so the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. This is an oath. That's how strongly God guaranteed that he'd bring in a new and better priesthood, a new and better, better covenant through the Messiah, Jesus. And so it's been guaranteed with an oath. And so to the extent that he guaranteed it with an oath, verse 22, by the same extent, Jesus also became the guarantee of a better covenant. And that word guarantee was standard legal language for someone who guaranteed or ensured that something would come to pass. We might even say a guarantor, right? Like someone who says, no, I vouch on my integrity and on my resources that I'll make sure this actually happens. Well, Jesus is the one who acts as the guarantor of God's promises. He's the one that ensures that God is going to bring in a new and a better covenant. And ultimately, this is because 
of his indestructible life, which is evidenced in his resurrection. And so verse 23 and 24 says, the former priests, that is the Levitical priests, on one hand, they existed in greater numbers because they were prevented from continuing by death. And so you have Levitical priest after Levitical priest after Levitical priest. We got to replace, we got to get a new one. High priest after high priest after high priest. Why? Because they kept dying. And so there's this continual line of priests. Their death just meant we had a whole bunch of them. But Jesus, verse 24, on the other hand, because he continues forever, connection with Psalm 110, verse 4, holds this, his priesthood permanently. And that word permanently is used only here in the New Testament. It refers to something unchanging and inviolable. Uh, one Greek writer, Plutarch, uses the word to speak of how constant the sun's movements are. They're just predictable, right? Like you just know what's going to happen. They are predictable. Well, that's the idea of this word. It is permanent and settled and unchanging. And so Jesus, because he continues forever, he holds his priesthood unchangingly, permanently, and it's guaranteed. And what's the significance of that? Well, the significance is this, verse 25. Therefore, that is based on the fact that he's the guarantor of a new covenant, that he has a superior priesthood, that priesthood is based on his indestructible life, based on all of that, therefore, he is also able to save forever those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Like, notice that he always lives. <laughs> and, and so because of that, he is able to save forever those who come to God through him. And that word forever, pontelis in Greek, there's really two options and it's reflected in the translations. So here in the New American Standard, you get he's able to save forever. If you take, for example, the NIV, it'll say he's, it'll say he's able to save completely. Some translations say to the utmost. And both ideas are actually involved in the immediate context. Jesus is a priest forever. And the author of Hebrews is dealing with the idea of bringing completeness or perfection. He's mentioned that in the preceding verses, which the law was incapable of doing. And so completeness, perfection. So which is it, forever or completely? Well, it's hard to know which idea is primary. Both words are in the context. Both words are ways this word pontelis could be translated. And both ideas actually go together. And so I suspect both are probably actually entailed in what the author is getting at. It's one of those places where um, both nuances of the word probably are involved here. Perfect, complete salvation because of never-ending intercession. That's the idea, that the Messiah Jesus is able to provide perfect and complete salvation because of his never-ending intercession. This was the job of priests. They were to be intercessors, to represent God to the people and the people to God. Now we have a priest in the Messiah Jesus who lives forever to serve this role of intercessor on behalf of his people. And the word intercession is actually here a comprehensive term that denotes 
all that Christ has done and is now doing to save and uh, redeem his people. It, it entails the work he did for justification, the work he does to sanctify him, the work he does to renew and restore and reconcile him. It's, it's that comprehensive term of his intermediary work between God and people. Christ has provided full, final, complete atonement. And the author of Hebrews will detail all of this in chapters 9 and 10. He is now at seated at the right hand of God for us. And that's where this argument's going to end in chapter 10. Like as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, who will bring a charge against uh, God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who then can condemn? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, now is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us, that he lives forever to make uh, complete and total intercession for his people. That's the idea. And so now, having stated all of that, having shown how um, Psalm 110 necessarily promised a change both of priesthood and thus a change of covenant. That promise was fulfilled in Jesus the Messiah who was raised from the dead and thus truly has inherited a forever priesthood. Having explained all of that, now uh, he wraps up the argument by way of summary and driving home the main point. He says, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. That is higher than the heavens. All of this emphasizes Jesus' uniqueness and his sinlessness in contrast to the Levitical priest. He's unique in the sense that he, he's undefiled, he's sinless, he's innocent. What does it mean when it says separated from sinners? It doesn't mean distance. He's not separated by distance distance, it refers to kind. He's different and distinct. He's, he's not a sinner, like they're a sinner, right? And that's what he means by separated from sinners. So don't hear that as separated in space and distance, separated in kind and being distinct and different from them. And so he's exalted above the heavens. Verse 27 goes on, who does not daily need, like those high priest, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he did this once for all time when he offered up himself. And so he doesn't need to keep offering sacrifices, and he doesn't need to offer sacrifices for his own sins because he's not a sinner. His sacrifice was so complete, so total, so perfect, that it was once for all time and for all people. And again, this is where the author of Hebrews is going to take us in chapters 9 through 10. So this is all in some sense set up for what he's going to explain in detail there. And so his, his sacrifice was once for all time for all people. For, verse 28, the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. But the word of the oath, that is Psalm 110 verse 4 that he's been interacting with, the word of the oath which came after the law it appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. By virtue of his resurrection and his exaltation and sitting down at the right hand of God, he now has brought in complete and total and forever salvation. And so at this point, we have now the twin themes that are going to occupy the author of Hebrews from chapter 8 through 10. A new covenant 
based on a new high priesthood and a superior high priestly work. And those themes then become dominant in the the following three chapters as he explores this new covenant and the new covenant salvation that Jesus has inaugurated in and through the offering of himself. As we wrap up this section, let me just say a huge thank you to those of you who, through your generous financial support, make the ministry of the listener's commentary possible. And if you've been impacted by the ministry of the listener's commentary and you want to join the team of supporters, you can swing on over to listenerscommentary.com, listenerscommentary.com, click the give button, and you can set up a recurring monthly donation or a one-time donation if you prefer All donations are received in partnership with World Family Mission. Thanks a ton for your support.